Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. That's the text for this morning, if you're not already there. The title for the message this morning is Behind Closed Doors. What do you think of when you think about behind closed doors? What takes place behind closed doors? It oftentimes has a negative connotation in our minds, does it not? Jesus is going to tell us this morning in our verses that what takes place behind closed doors is pleasing to him. It's honoring to him. It's right and it's noble and it's admirable and it's praiseworthy. You'll note that we've been studying, if you've been with us, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That sermon is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've just turned the page to chapter 6. We've finished the Beatitudes. We've talked about the righteousness that is to be evident in our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us back in chapter 5 that our righteousness must surpass that, must outclass that, literally, of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he's been doing since he uttered those words is telling us what that means, what that looks like, what the implications are for that in our lives. What does it mean for our righteousness to surpass or to supersede that of the Pharisees? We began talking last week about how we're to practice our righteousness. Jesus tells us to beware, to be cautious, to be mindful, to be alert, to be vigilant, to be on guard, to have our eyes wide open. And first he told us that we need to beware of practicing the righteousness, specifically that of giving to be seen by men. And ultimately, we can apply this principle to any area, any facet of the Christian life. We said last week, that Jesus is ultimately putting his finger on the area or the issue of motives in our life. Why do we do the things we do? What drives us? What motivates us? What propels us? What pushes us forward? Is it the honor and the glory and the admiration of God himself? Or are we seeking a lesser and a cheaper substitute in the applause, the temporary applause and adulation and congratulation and attaboys and praise of men. Jesus is going to take that same principle this morning, seeking to live lives before an audience of one, seeking to be seen by him alone, to please him alone this morning, and he's going to apply it to our prayer lives this morning. In verses 5 through 8. Let me encourage you, if you have the ability this morning, to stand with us as we read God's Word. This is Matthew, recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what Matthew records. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. They may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows that you need them before you ask of Him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides and stands forever. You may be seated. 
four main points on your outline this morning. Number one, would encourage you to take notes. You'll listen better if you do, is this. Beware. Beware of ostentatious pride. Prideful praying. If you want to sub prideful there for ostentatious, you can do that. Beware of ostentatious prayer or beware of prideful prayer. Let me direct your attention to verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others truly. I say to you that they have received their reward in full. We learned something about the hypocrites last week. Jesus supplied that same term to those who give in order to be seen by men instead of for the glory of God. The same term is used here. It's the Greek noun, hypocrites. And it refers to an actor, or it refers to a character who wears a mask and plays a part. In other words, it's a stage player. Jesus says here, when you pray, do not be like the stage player. Do not be like the one who just plays the part. Do not be like the one who wears the mask. Figuratively, this word, hypocrites, it refers to anyone who treats the world as a stage on which they play their own little part. Jesus calls the Pharisees and the scribes here hypocrites because externally they seem to be wonderfully religiously polished. But this was just a pretense. This was just a sham. It was just a cover for the real motivation of their hearts, which was to be seen and applauded by others. They gave to be seen and applauded by others, and now they pray to be seen and applauded by others. You see, the problem is is that they were pretending to be something that they weren't. They were taking on a false identity. My friends, I said this last week, we have no room to poke fun at the Pharisees because I would submit to you that in our praying, we oftentimes are just like they. Notice here where Jesus says they pray. He says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Now, it's important that we note that there wasn't anything inherently sinful about praying in the synagogues. As a matter of fact, this was the modern-day equivalent for the Pharisees and the scribes of our church building. I mean, this is where the public worship of God took place. This is where the public prayer of God took place. This is where the public reading of God's Word took place. This was, for us, the modern-day church service. And so there's nothing inherently evil about praying in the synagogues. Likewise, there's nothing inherently evil about praying on the street corners. As a matter of fact, a devout Jew would have stopped wherever he happened to be, even on a street corner, if the appointed hour of prayer had come. It's interesting to note that the word for street here, it's a different word than the word that's translated street in verse 2. Look back at verse 2 for a moment. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Totally different word here in verse 5. Here's the difference. The street in verse 2, krume, it's a small or a narrow street. Conversely, the street here in verse 5, platea, it's a wide street, a major street, a major intersection, which would have been bustling with people. And Jesus says the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites, especially love to pray on these streets. The reason behind that is because they were busy and they would have garnered the largest audience. And so you can see here how the Pharisees are posturing themselves. They're positioning themselves to posture themselves so that they might receive the praise of men. 
Friends, we don't need to try and impress others to get attention. We don't need to try and impress God to get his attention. I would submit to you that Jesus' words here have actually less to do with location and more to do with motivation. There's nothing inherently sinful about praying in the synagogues or praying even on busy street corners. The issue that Jesus is putting his finger squarely on in our hearts this morning is our motivation, not the location. Why do you do what you do? Jesus isn't saying that it's, it's wrong to be heard when we pray. Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to, pay, to pray in a public place. But we should be on guard against praying in public if we're not in the habit of praying in private. We should be very cautious about being very ready to pray in public if we are not given to the habit of private prayer. Let me illustrate it this way. Public prayer ought to be the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. About 10% of an iceberg floats above the surface of the ocean while the other 90% is submerged. And in the same way, I think Jesus is getting at here, this is an illustration or a picture, our public prayers ought to be supported by a large mass of private prayer throughout the week. But unfortunately, the prayer life of the average Christian, and I'm convicted here, I'm in the crosshairs, is more like the Titanic than an iceberg. Here's what I mean by that. We are oftentimes proud vessels above the surface, but underneath our respectable Christianity, the bulkheads are filling with water, the pumps are failing, and we're in danger of sinking in the sea of spiritual neglect. Our public prayer life, if you think in terms of the illustration of the iceberg, ought to be the tip of the iceberg. There ought to be a deep and abiding prayer life that is secret that is hidden, that is personal and private, that is between us and the Lord alone. But unfortunately, oftentimes we can be a whole lot more like the Titanic than we can that iceberg in the first place. The boat's going down, it's sinking in the sea of spiritual neglect. Because we're neglecting to foster, to cultivate, to grow that personal, private prayer life, which Jesus says takes place behind closed doors and is very pleasing to him if it's done with the right motive. So really it's a question, we put our finger on this last week as well, of what do we really love? What do we really love? It's interesting to note here in the text that Jesus says the hypocrites love to pray. Did you catch that? The hypocrites, they love to pray. Unfortunately, that's more that can be said for some of us. Sadly, it's not the prayer that they love, nor the God to which they pray. Rather, they love themselves, and they love the opportunity that public prayer gives them to parade themselves. The acceptable cliches that we pray with, the appropriate sentiments, the tones in which we pray with, the well-pitched fervency which we use when we pray, all these things, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing inherently sinful with them. But... Our wicked heart can exploit those things and can use them as tools to win approval if we're not careful. How boisterous do we pray? How much passion do we pray with? What words do we use? What phrases do we string together? There's nothing sinful about any of that. But our sinful hearts can certainly exploit those things and they can become tools to win approval if we're not careful. 
Could it be, let me ask you this question, friends, could it be that the reason that more of our prayers aren't answered is because we're more interested in being seen and heard by others than we are in actually bringing our request before God? Could it be that the reason that more of our prayers aren't answered is because we're all too concerned with making sure others approve of us than we are about actually bringing our requests before the giver of all good things? Let me say a word here about the subtleness of sin. Friends, nothing is so sacred that Satan won't try to invade it. There is nothing so sacred that Satan won't try to invade it. As a matter of fact, the more sacred something is, the more desirous Satan is to profane it. And I think such is the case with prayer in the life of a believer. You see, sin is so insidious that it follows us all the way into the very presence of God. So there is a man at at the pinnacle of his religious expression of worship, on his knees in prayer, and the insidious nature of sin follows him even there in wrong motives. Nothing is quite so wrong-headed as to think of sin only in terms of actions. We do that from time to time. We think that sin is that which we do. Sin is an action. But I would submit to you that as a matter of fact, as long as we think in sin only in terms of things that we actually do, we will fail to understand sin. Here's what I mean by that. The essence of sin is essentially a disposition. In other words, it's a state of the heart. If we only see sin as that which we do, then we have misunderstood sin. Sin at its essence, sin at its core, sin at its foundation is a disposition. It's an attitude of the heart. That's what sin is. Now it works its way out into our actions, but sin is first a state of the heart. You know, a telling photograph of sin is that of someone on his knees in prayer pouring out his soul or her soul to God only to have that prayer dissolve into preoccupation with self so that he or she is left really only worshiping himself or herself. That's the insidious nature of sin. Is that a man or a woman can be on their knees in prayer pouring out their heart to the Lord and that can all in an instant vanish. That can all in an instant dissolve into a preoccupation with self so that we've really ceased to be worshiping God in the first place and we have turned to worshiping ourselves. The same thing can be said about how we conduct ourselves in corporate worship here. There's nothing wrong with raising hands. There's nothing wrong with bending a knee. There's nothing wrong with coming to the altar. There's nothing wrong with laying prostrate on the floor. There's nothing wrong with saying amen or hallelujah. There's nothing inherently sinful about all those things. But our Jeremiah 17, 9, wickedly deceitful heart, if we're not careful, will exploit those very expressions of worship. And we will begin to use them as tools for self-worship. To be seen. I mean, we all want to appear, and this is, this is driven by sin. We all want to appear to be pious. We all want to appear to have our religious ducks in an order. 
We all want to appear to be spiritual. And in that desiring to appear in that way, that directs our actions. Our motivations will always direct our actions. You can take it to the bank. It's as good as gold. And I would submit to you that this religious Pharisaism is far from dead today. Again, it's possible to go to to church. It's possible to be here this morning, sitting in the seat you're sitting in for the same wrong-headed reason that took the Pharisee to the synagogue. And that's to be seen, to be noticed, to be thought of as spiritual. Not to worship God, but to feel better about ourselves or to stroke our egos by gaining a, a reputation for our religiosity. You see, ulterior motives degrade the service of God into self-worship. Ulterior motives degrade the worship of God into self-worship. And those lines can be blurred very, very quickly. When we practice our righteousness to be seen and praised by men, our actions, they actually cease to be worship offered to God in praise and they become more like exhibitions performed in a circus. When we practice our righteousness, whatever it may be, our giving, our praying, our fasting, the way we use our treasures, our posture in worship, whatever it may be, when we're practicing our righteousness to be seen and praised by men, and that's a very easy line to cross, our actions cease to be worship offered to God in praise, and they become more like an act in a circus. There's exhibitions to be seen. Jesus tells the Pharisees here the same thing he told them last week and the same thing that he tells us this morning. He tells us that if our motivation for doing the things that we do is merely to be seen, to be known, or to be honored by men, then we'll get what it is we're after, but no more. The reward stops there. I mentioned last week that inherent in the Greek word received is the idea of payment in full. Matter of fact, the word received comes from the commerce world. It means to settle an account by paying a bill and then receiving a receipt that is stamped or that says paid in full. And so Jesus is in effect saying here, if recognition is what you seek, if in your praying or if in your worship posture recognition is what you seek, then temporary recognition is what you'll get. If the pleasure of being in the spotlight is what you seek, then the temporary pleasure of fanfare is all you'll get. You see, to those who seek out and receive the praise of men, they should not expect a heavenly reward in addition. Why? Because they've already been paid in full. I'll never forget as a young Christian, a prideful young Christian, and I'm still prideful today. We're all a work in progress, are we not? In Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not a one of us has arrived. Not a one of us is without sin. Not a one of us is without error. Not a one of us is without mixed motives. Not a one of us is unlike the Pharisee whom we see in the text this morning. But I'll never forget, I had come to his home after being on campus for the day and had shared with him in front of the rest of the young men that he was discipling about an awesome conversation that I had had, a a gospel conversation with another lost young man. 
And he picked up very quickly on the sense that I was blowing the trumpet, that I was tooting my own horn. And he replied to me and he said, Eric, that's great. Guess what? You just received your reward in full. You just received your reward in full. The fact that you would come and boast, and it was, it was boasting. It wasn't just a telling, it wasn't honoring God, it wasn't this is what the Lord has done, it was a look what I have done. And his reply, it was very gracious, but it cut right to the heart. He said, Eric, you've received your reward in full. Stamped, paid in full, paid in full. And so often our religious actions, if they're motivated by the praise of man, that's all we get paid. It's stamped, paid in full. Let me say a word about our motives here for just a second, friends. It isn't always easy. As a matter of fact, it's oftentimes difficult to know when we've crossed over the line between focusing on God alone and then being conscious of others watching or listening to us. It's hard to know sometimes where that line is because we can begin sometimes seeking to garner an audience of one with God alone and then we can step over the line Again, our flesh wants to come and it wants to exploit that opportunity very quickly. I was telling uh, a young person in my office this week uh, in a counseling meeting that sin is kind of like the game of whack-a-mole. You ever played that? You know, up pops a little guy and you bounce his head back down and then up pops another one and you bounce his head back down. I mean, that's the way sin works. That's why Jesus says, beware, be on guard. Because as soon as you think you've, you've got one sin taken care of over here, there's another one that pops up over here, and there's another one that pops up over there. We've got to always be on guard. But it's not always easy to know when we've crossed over the line between focusing on God and then being concerned inordinately about what others might think about us or about what others are hearing. I mean, even when we're singing, the thought, does the person next to me think my voice is good or am I singing off key? I mean, in that moment, we're distracted from the pure worship of Christ and we're worshiping ourselves. We're thinking about ourselves. That's how insidious sin is. Sin is a disposition. Sin is a state of the heart before it's ever an action. Why do we want the things we want? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we posture ourselves the way that we posture ourselves? I had a young man ask me last week after the service. It was a a, a great question. And I wish I would have tackled it last week, and so I'll tackle it right now. But his question was honest, and it was this. He said, should I wait until my motives are right? He said, I struggle with motives. Should I wait until my motives are right to give? And should I wait until my motives are right to pray? And should I wait until my motives are right to fast? I mean, that's a good question, and it's an honest question. But I would submit to you that the answer is no. We shouldn't wait until our motives are right to obey. If we wait until our motives are right to obey, we'll never obey. And so we obey, and in obeying, we simultaneously ask that the Lord would soften our hearts, that He would help us to direct our eyes upon Jesus alone, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, and the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Help me to do that, God. 
Help me in, in the midst of my obedience, whatever it may be, to be single-hearted and single-minded and single-eyed. Help me to do that. I don't know, to be honest with you, and I think this is true of all of us, I don't know if I've scarcely ever had a completely pure motive. I mean, so often our motives are, can be good and true and right and noble and praiseworthy and admirable and excellent, all those things that Paul tells us to think about in Philippians 4.8. But then along with that is, is the, the tainting of self. Here I am, I've got a pure motive, I'm worshiping God. Here I am, I'm, I'm giving or I'm praying or I'm singing or, or I'm lifting my hands or whatever it may be. And self just kind of drifts over. It's kind of like taking a big glass vessel full of clear water and dropping one drop of food coloring into it. A little bit of self contaminates, and it does it so quickly. That's the insidious nature of sin. And I think oftentimes we probably have mixed motives the genuine desire to please and honor God, but that warring flesh likes to make an aggressive appearance, and so we've got to have the, the little boppers in our hands so that we can always be on guard. We always be mindful. I would encourage you to pray, even if you're uncertain if your motives are right, and in doing so to pray that the Lord would give you right motives as you do it. While you're praying, pray that God would grant you a pure heart that seeks his attention alone. Let me just give you a few heart-penetrating questions here. These are a few questions that kind of zero in on the motives of our hearts that would help us discern, am I doing this for the audience of God alone, or am I doing this to garner the audience and the praise and the approval and the, the attaboys and the applause of men? There's a few heart-penetrating questions for you, specifically about prayer. Do I pray more frequently? Just listen. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I do in public? Do I love to pray in private? Is my public prayer simply an overflow of my private prayer? What do I think about when I'm praying in front of others? Why don't I pray in front of others? How about that one? Fear is the other side of pride's pendulum. Why don't I pray in front of others? Could be motivated or rooted by the exact same root sin, pride. Can want to be seen, and then I can be fearful of opening my mouth and saying something wrong, so I don't pray anything at all. It's pride on both ends of the spectrum. Fear is pride redressed. Am I concerned with the attention of others more than I am on God's attention? Am I more aware of the presence of others than I am on the presence of God? And this one's challenging for me, lastly here. When I'm praying, do I search for the right words and the right phrases that my prayer sounds good? We should not be concerned with prayers that sound good. Now, let me make a distinction here. We should be concerned with prayers that sound 
biblical. Okay? But we should not be concerned with how beautiful our prayers are, how eloquently we speak, how we're able to string theological terms and phrases together. If that is our concern, then we've probably stepped over the line and we're worshiping and serving ourselves rather than God. Friends, beware of ostentatious prayer. Beware of prideful prayer. That's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 5. Number two, beware of distracted prayer. Beware of distracted prayer. Look at verse 6. Paul says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again here, I think the primary point that Jesus is trying to make has a whole lot less to do with location than it does attitude. Jesus says here, if you're struggling, you're struggling with being seen, you're struggling with with wanting or you're tempted to want the approval of man, then go to the most secluded private place you can find so that you won't be tempted to show off. Go there, Jesus says, and shut the door. Shut out everything else so that you can concentrate on God and you can pray to your Father alone. Do whatever you have to do to get your attention away from yourself and off of others. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here when he says, go into your room and shut the door. Now, this is a metaphor, okay? It's interesting to note that many people in Jesus' day did not even have a, a dwelling place that had a door in it. Matter of fact, most of the world does not have a door to get behind. We have many of them. and We can't imagine not having one to get behind. I think Jesus is speaking here metaphorically. In the sense that we are to go to the place, retire to the place, get away to the place where we can shut out all distractions. If necessary, that we can remove ourselves from the temptation to be seen by men. So Jesus encourages here, close the door on disturbances, close the door on distractions, shut out the eyes of men by shutting ourselves in with God. You see, just as nothing destroys prayer, Like side glances at human spectators, nothing enriches prayer like a sense of the presence of God alone. For God sees not only the outward appearance, the one who is praying, but he sees the motive for which we pray. 1 Samuel 16, 7. You look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. It's where the motives reside. Now, the Greek word translated room here, it's the word tamion. It's actually a word that's used to refer to a small room that treasures were sometimes kept in. And so the implication here might be that there are treasures waiting for us when we pray. Now, we must be careful that we don't take that too far. Simply meaning that God will answer us, that our Father hears us and He'll answer Now, does that mean that God is going to answer every prayer? No, it doesn't. We're not backing God into a corner. We're not pressing Him against a wall. We're not conjoling Him or making Him bow a knee to our whims and our wants and our desires that He has to give to us what we want, when we want it, how we want it. That's not the way God works. He's creator, we're creation. He's master, we're servant. He's king, we're subject. Now, having said that, 
Having said that, John tells us that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have that which we've asked of him. Now, the operative phrase there is praying in line with God's will. Friends, let me ask you, how do we do that? How do we, how do we know God's will to pray God's will? We must be very well acquainted with this book. God wrote a book that we would read it, that we would know it, that we would hide it in our hearts and our minds that we might not sin against him. And in this book, God, because he's a self-disclosing God, has revealed himself and he's revealed many of his purposes. Much of his will, at least his revealed will, is contained in this book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But how will we know it unless we mine its riches? And that's not easy work. I mean, diamonds are are very beautiful. They're very costly. But you don't find them walking along the side of the road. Gold is very beautiful and it's very costly, but you don't find it walking along the side of the road. You've got to mine for it. It takes work. You've got to dig in God's Word and unearth its riches. And in doing so, we begin to learn the revealed will of God. What does God want for my life? What has God told me to do? What has God told me not to do? How am I to speak? How am I to think? How am I to relate? How am I to parent? How am I to husband? How am I to work? How am I to please Jesus? How am I to pray? How am I to give? You see, God's will speaks to all those things. But if I'm not hiding God's word in my heart, then I won't know God's will. If I don't know God's will, then I can't pray God's will. If I'm not praying God's will, I have no confidence that he'll hear me and he'll give me that which I asked of him. The operative word there is praying in God's will. And our Father, who is in secret, when we get away from all the distractions, when we go to the treasure room, so to speak, he hears us and he answers. It's there, away from distractions and sweet communion with God, that he lifts high his countenance on us. He gives us peace. He refreshes our soul. He satisfies our hunger. He quenches our thirst. He gives us strength for our weary hearts. Those might be some of those treasures, by the way. They're some of the things that God does when we get away and we commune and we fellowship with him free from distractions. Those might be some of his greatest treasures to us outside of the crushing of his son on Calvary's cross for the redemption of our sin. The principle that Jesus is teaching about here, that principle of secrecy, is an important one. When we're engaging God in prayer, we must shut out other people, forget other people, shut out and forget ourselves, shut out anything that would hinder or distract our full attention from being set on God alone. And again, I would tell you, the physical location of a secret prayer room, or of a secret closet, that isn't the point that Jesus is trying to make here because you can enter into that room, so to speak. You can enter into a physical room anywhere, anytime. You can go into a study room at the library. You can go into a room of your home. You can go into a classroom of the church and you can be in secret. But I would tell you that you can be in that, quote, secret room as you're walking down the street. As you're just communing with the Lord, not concerned about who's looking or who's watching or whose attention is on me, but just as I'm going through daily life, as I'm driving to work, as I'm sitting at my desk, 
as, I, as I'm doing some of the, the mundane tasks that have to be done at home, washing dishes, mowing the yard, picking up the house, I can be in that secret room right here in my heart, not concerned about what other people think or say, just fellowshipping with the Lord. The whole point that Jesus is trying to get at here is that we are to forget others and forget ourselves. See, there's no value in going to a physical room, by the way, and shutting the door if the whole time we're thinking about ourselves and priding ourselves on our prayer. If that's the case, we might as well be standing on the street corner. If we go into a physical room and the whole time we're just thinking about ourselves and we can't get our mind off of others, then we might as well be standing on the street corner. Physical location isn't the point here. Does Jesus forbid public prayer? No, that's not what he's forbidding, not at all. If Jesus was forbidding public prayer in this verse, then the early church certainly misunderstood Jesus. Because we see lots of corporate prayer taking place, especially in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4. All those places record public prayer. Jesus is saying, rid yourself of distractions so that you're not tempted to think about other people and you're not tempted to think about yourself. Number three. Beware of mindless prayer. Beware of mindless prayer. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Empty phrases. Batolageo. ESV, it's translated empty phrases. If you've got the New American Standard in front of you, it's meaningless phrases. The King James uh, translates it vain repetition. It's only used here in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's only used in two other places in all of secular Greek. It's, a, it's an interesting word. It's a bit challenging, as a matter of fact, to precisely translate. It's presumed, actually, to be a compound word of two Aramaic words. The word batos, meaning stuttering or babbling or stammering, and logos, means word or talk, so stammering talk or babbling talk or idle talk or vain repetition or, or meaningless phrases, empty phrases as it finds its way translated in our Bibles. You see, to pray at length was regarded by the Gentiles as the way to make sure that one's prayer was absolutely heard by whatever deity the Gentile pagan was praying to at that moment. I just, I just got to keep talking, and maybe by doing so, I'll get his attention. Well, unfortunately, what happened is many of the Jews actually picked up on the very pagan practice that the Gentiles used. Jesus' Jewish audience had, had heavily been influenced by the prayers of Gentile pagans who would incessantly repeat themselves to try and get the attention, again, of whatever God they were currently trying to entreat. And so the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that the longer the prayer was, the more apt that God was to hear it. The problem here is that verbosity, it was confused with meaning, and length was confused with sincerity. Long prayers, verbose prayers, they were confused with meaning and with sincerity. Jesus says that our prayer should not consist of heaped up phrases or idle repetitions or ridiculous, the ridiculous assumption that the probability of an answer is in some way connected to the proportion of the number of words we utter in prayer. Jesus says that's, that's foolishness. No matter how long your prayers are, doesn't matter how wordy they are, no matter how eloquent they are. As a matter of fact, if we're thinking down that track, we're thinking down the wrong set of tracks in the first place. 
And Solomon reminds us, wise Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be what? Few. Let your words be few. Again, we need to be clear about the fact that Jesus isn't condemning persistent prayer. He's not even condemning repetitious prayer. The fact that a prayer request is repeated doesn't make it vain repetition. It doesn't make it meaningless. It doesn't make it an empty phrase. How many times did Paul pray that the thorn would be removed from his flesh? Three times. How many times did Jesus pray, Lord, let this cup pass from me? Three times. Neither were considered idle repetition, meaningless phrases. Neither is Jesus forbidding long prayers. Matter of fact, he himself prayed all night on one occasion. Luke chapter 6, he told his followers uh, in Luke chapter 18 that they should pray always and not grow weary. It's not based on the, on the length of our prayer. What Jesus is putting his finger on here is that the length of our prayer can persuade God to act. It's a false presumption. Jesus isn't impressed with many words. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that he's less interested in what your mouth is saying and more interested in what your heart is saying. Now, don't misunderstand me. What your mouth says is very important. I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here. I'm just simply saying that I think what our heart says is more important than what our mouth says. But if our heart is in the right place, oftentimes our mouth will follow, right? Luke 6.45, out of an overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The mouth speaks. Jesus isn't saying that what your mouth says isn't important, but what he is saying is the heart takes the cake. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15? He said, this people, they honor me with their what? But their what's far from me? In other words, the mouth can say all kinds of right things and still get it all wrong. And friends, this ought to challenge us. The mouth can say all the right things, and yet the heart can get it all wrong. All of us have routine, mindless prayers on file. And once we get rid of them, we can actually begin to pray. Here's what I mean by that. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. God is good. God is great. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for the daily bread. Now, are those prayers sinful? They're not. Mark it down. They're not. But here is what they often are. Mindless. They're just rote. We have them memorized, and so we just say them. It's just religious words that come flying out of our mouths without any real connection to the heart. You see, prayer isn't easy. Effective prayer doesn't happen when we're on autopilot, friends. Effective prayer is difficult. It's laborious. It's hard work. God wants our hearts to be engaged, but he also wants our minds to be engaged. He doesn't want mindless prayer where we're just uttering words to him thinking that we're going to be heard for our many words or our wonderful string of theological phrases. Number four, and lastly, beware of prayer that forgets who and how big God is. Beware of prayer that forgets who and how big God is. Look at verse eight. Again, Jesus says, do not be like them. 
for your Father knows what you need before you ask of Him. A.W. Tozer in his book, and I would commend this to your Christian bookshelf if you don't have a copy of it, The Knowledge of the Holy. Phenomenal, phenomenal little book. Get you a copy of Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. This is what he says in the opening paragraph. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most fundamental and important thing about you. And so as we approach the throne of grace in prayer, we need to be mindful that we are entering into the presence of the eternal, almighty, omnipotent, sovereign God with all of His power, with all of His might, and with all of His majesty. We need to be mindful of the fact that we're entering into the chambers of a God who is an all-consuming fire. We need to be mindful of the fact that we are entering into the chambers of a God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. The God who is utterly and absolutely holy. The God who demanded that Moses take off his sandals. But we must also be mindful that in Christ, this God who would otherwise be unapproachable is our Father. Your Father. Daddy. He knows what you need. He knows what you need before you know what you need. Before we come, Dad knows all about us. Before we utter a word, He knows our every need. He knows every hair on our head. David reminds us in Psalm 139, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You've searched out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. We must be mindful of who God is and how big He is when we enter into His chambers, when we approach the throne of grace in prayer. Friends, let me submit to you that as a child of God, God wants to commune with you more than you could ever want to commune with Him. He delights to bless you more than you even desire to be blessed, and He is more ready to give to you than you ever are to receive from Him. That's the one to whom we pray. And so we don't have to conjole Him. We don't have to try to garner His attention. He's not impressed with our many words. He's not impressed with all of our postures. Can those things be absolutely pleasing? They can. And right, they can. But he's not impressed with them. If we do them just to do them. If we do them because we think it's a part of what it means to be spiritual and religious. Our Father has already purchased our ultimate good in Christ. And he desires to bless us with his own fullness. And so we don't have to try and garner his attention by mechanical, repetitious, autopilot, prayer. What confidence this brings to our hearts when we know that we don't have to inform or make God aware of anything. He knows your need, friends. When you come to God in prayer, you're not telling him anything he does not already know. You're not informing him of anything that he is not already aware of. He's intimately acquainted with our lives. Can I submit to you that one of the reasons that we are so given to worry and anxiousness is because we forget that God knows Let me repeat that. One of the reasons I think that we are so given, so riddled by fear and anxiety and worry is because we forget the the bedrock truth that God knows. 
He knows what you need. He knows all things. 10,000 fears would be wiped away if we remembered in the middle of our fears that God is already there. He's never faced with the dilemma of trying to figure out what he's going to do or how he's going to meet our needs. Wanting to be seen, vain repetition. They're all, all those things are rooted in, prayer, or in fear, by the way. Wanting to be seen by men, fear. Fear of what? Rejection. Vain repetition, fear. Fear what? That God might not hear me. And so what does Jesus say about fear? We're going to be here in just a handful of weeks. Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or your drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and let your heavenly Father is aware of them. He feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you being anxious about anything can add a single hour or a span to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I can tell you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if, so if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know what the opposite of faith is? Fear. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or whatever you need. For the Gentiles, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father, finish the sentence, knows you need them. He knows you need them. He knows you need them. So why pray? Why pray if God already knows what we need? You know what that question's called? Fatalism. Theologically, that's what that's called. Why, why pray if God already knows what I need? Why share my faith if God has already chosen who's going to come to faith in Christ? Why do those things? It's called fatalism. Well, let me give you just a couple of reasons and we'll land the plane right here. Number one, because God commands we pray. Why? Because God says so. Number two, because God has ordained both the means and the end. In other words, God uses our prayer. He uses our prayer to work into his sovereign will. Third, God chooses to honor our obedience. And then fourthly, God promises to answer prayer. Prayed in his will. Friends, God always answers his children. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says not now. But even when God says no, it's because he has a better idea for you than you could even have for yourself. I mean, Jesus said no to healing Lazarus because raising him from the dead was better. You can trust him. He knows.